story that, uh, again, Daniel's one of those books where you learn these great stories as kiddos, and uh, they're not just stories for kids, they're stories for adults, great lessons and applications for that. And tonight is one of those great lessons as well, as we'll be talking about Bill Shazer's Great Feast and the Writing on the Wall. I guess everyone knows uh, that expression, writing on the wall, and uh, maybe it came from here, I don't know, but if it did, it would be, it makes sense. <laughs> well, let's go to God in prayer as we start. Father, we thank you for this quiet evening. We thank you so much for the health that we enjoy that enables us to come out, and we are grateful that we can do that. Thank you for blessing us each and every day with our needs, with our excesses as well, that you bountifully bless us with. May we use all things that we have to your name's honor and glory. May our very thoughts in our hearts tonight be upon you. May you be glorified and honored as we study your word and reveal just how great you are and how you taught those people of old that you are the most high God who reigns in the kingdom of men. We pray that you would bless us in our study in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we'll be quickly reviewing chapters 1 through 4, which is where we've been, and then we'll take a look at chapter 5. Um, chapters 1 through 4, um, Daniel in his first chapter, they had their very, very first test to not defile themselves when the, with the king's food. And then in chapter 2, we see that uh, God gave Daniel the ability to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's great dream about this great, great image that he saw with the golden head. And as a matter of fact, we're going to get into a portion of that tonight as something that he explains is going to come, come, to, uh, come to pass. And then we went into chapter 3, which talks about how God rescued Daniel's three friends from the uh, burning furnace when they refused to bow down to the image, the 90-foot image that had been built. And then remember when the music played, they were all supposed to, to drop and fall down and prostrate themselves before this. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. And God will protect us. And sure enough, God did. Then last week, we talked about how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And in particular, we mentioned that this was a story in chapter four that was told from Nebuchadnezzar's own words. This was a story that Daniel obviously recorded and put in his writings, but it is from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar himself, who finally realized that God, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of this captive Israelite nation that is in my, in my empire that I have here in, Jerusalem, in Babylon, is the most high God. And it is the God that I need to be paying homage to and I need to give glory to. And he does that in chapter 4. And uh, we also mentioned that last week was basically we saw Nebuchadnezzar go out of the, go out of the book of Daniel. And nothing's told about what happened to him. And then rises here tonight another king by the name of Belshazzar. Um, so we're talking about the handwriting on the wall tonight. I also want to make sure we, uh, we never forget, it's, we're in this section of chapters 
where the chapters are written originally in Aramaic. So we are in chapter 5. We'll have a couple more chapters that are in Aramaic, and then it's going to drop back into Hebrew. And we talked about that in the beginning where some of the emphasis is on the characters of Babylon, and, um, and then it's going to be the characters on Persia. And then we'll flip back as it does in chapter 1 and 2 and chapters 8 through 12 about the emphasis being more so on Judah and what's going to happen to those, the people of God. And as you look at the chapter 5 tonight, it's really broken down to a number of easy-to-read sections. We have the first four verses that talks about King Belshazzar's drunken feast. Um, and then we get into the specific situation that this whole chapter surrounds, and that's the writing on the wall that he sees. We then move into a few verses that talks about him asking for help. I need this writing that I see on this wall interpreted. What does it mean? And he calls for his own people who cannot help him. And finally, at the urging of the queen, which I will probably end up calling just the queen mother, um, he calls for Daniel. Daniel comes to the rescue, uh, but before Daniel reads the writing on the wall, and he does those two things, which his people could not do, he reads the writing on the wall, then he tells them what the writing means, but before he does that, he gives a little history lesson to Belshazzar to make sure he understands just exactly who God is and how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, which um, I'm, I'm, I may keep calling him his grandfather. There's some things in, that I've read that it says it may have been his grandfather. The Bible calls him his father. So I just may stick to grandfather, ancestor. I don't know what I'll end up saying. I may forget it. Uh, but he ends up rebuking the king. He interprets the writing for him. And after that, Belshazzar honors Daniel. And then the very same night, Belshazzar is slain. And Darius the Mede takes over. So as we go back then to uh, the first few, first few verses of uh, chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we're going to find that chapter 5 ended pretty abruptly. It simply begins, or I should say it uh, starts pretty abruptly. It didn't end pretty abruptly. It starts pretty abruptly because it simply begins with an introduction of this character named Belshazzar, the king, who's giving a banquet for a thousand of his nobles. It is the previous chapter that ended with the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar, remember, to his king, to his kingdom. And he, he praises God as his king, as the king of heaven. However, nothing is ever said about how Nebuchadnezzar died, when he died, or where he died. Although chapter 5 clearly presumes and assumes that all of that took place. And history shows us that it did for sure. But about 70 years roughly had elapsed since the beginning of chapter 1 of Daniel and to where we are uh, tonight, 66 to 70 years. Uh, and in this particular chapter, uh, we are going to see the fulfillment of a prophecy that Daniel spoke about in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, when he told Nebuchadnezzar, after your kingdom shall arise another kingdom that is inferior to yours. That particular prophecy is going to start coming to, uh, is going to start being revealed tonight. Um, so just to make sure we see where we are and where we got there, here's, here's a snapshot of some of the things that took place between chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. We have here, um, where is that? 
we have here Nebuchadnezzar, he passes away, and then he dies in 562, he reigned 43 years. He was succeeded, we covered this in the very first lesson, so this is a review. He was, he was succeeded by his son, um, evil Merodach. He then was assassinated himself after two years. His, actually, he was assassinated by a brother-in-law. But another brother-in-law took his place. Talk about family problems. Um, Neraglisser, who is also the brother-in-law to evil Merodach, came into being. He was a king for five, four years. He then died of natural causes and was replaced by his son, uh, Labashi Murdoch, who died within six to nine months after being um, on, on the throne. And by the way, do you know who spearheaded that little conspiracy? Belshazzar. <laughs> the Bible doesn't reveal that, but in historical records, Belshazzar is behind some of that. And so he is behind Labashi being slain, and then Nabonidus, who is Belshazzar's father, takes over and actually reigns for some 17, did I get it right? Yes, yeah, 17 years. Um, he is actually, as we mentioned, rarely in Babylon. Just three years after becoming the king, he left in 553 for 10 years and went to this oasis of T-E-I-M-A, some 500 miles away. And while he was there, he became a renowned archaeologist. He got into archaeology and digging of the areas and finding about all these things that were happening. And I don't know if that's why he stayed away for 10 years, but he did stay away that long. But he finally came back four years prior to the start of this lesson in chapter 1, which is in 543. And uh, this guy, Nabonidus, was a character. Uh, most of Babylon worshipped the god Murdoch, or Marduk, but he loved the moon god S-I-N. I don't know if he called that sign, sin, or whatever the case was. But that got him into trouble with the locals. All the locals and all the priests worship Marduk, but he likes sin, literally loves sin. And as a result of that, that may be one reason why he was away for so long. But when he came back, he actually started making moves to worship this god of sin more so and kind of move Marduk out of the way. Those are some of the fill-in-the-blank things that were happening historically when you look into the kingdom of Babylon. But it is interesting to me that he became a renowned uh, archaeologist. Some people even say he's the father of archaeology. I didn't know that. <laughs> and... Um, so that's kind of the background of where we were and how we got there. So after he is defeated by Cyrus on the way to the city of Babylon, we'll talk about this a little bit later, we'll find out, and we, we mentioned Nabonidus actually surrendered, went to another town, um, I forget the name of it, it starts with a B, but he actually surrendered, then eventually became a governor of a province in Persia. In the meanwhile, Belshazzar, who's been the co-regent for some time, was now having a party in chapter 5, verse 1, and that's where we are, and that's how we get to chapter, from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5. The Holy Spirit didn't see fit to fill that in for everything, but uh, his, history tells us a little bit about that. Yes. Oh, Mike. <laughs> It's interesting to note, according to the Asian custom, which the Babylonians uh, 
ruled under. Mm -hmm. He was second in command, actually the queen mother. Uh, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar died, the queen mother ruled rather than the son or the grandson. Because hmm. you note in verse 7, he's going to make whoever interprets the dream third yeah. ruler. So he's, he's second. That's why the queen mother is pulling the strings in the background, so to speak. Yeah. Now, now see, he's been over there. He's been to these places where Babylon is, and he's walked all those roads. There's a lot of interesting things that he could fill in the blanks. And I will tell you, I read that, and there's some other people, though, who, and we'll talk about this, who do think that maybe... The Bonitus was the first ruler, he was the second, and then when he mentions the third ruler, Daniel, you may, you may the th be the third rule. It's so interesting, just the history that is being brought out every day by archaeology, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but thank you for that particular note. But as we look at chapter 5, verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Did Belshazzar really exist? And was he a king? Well, the Bible says he was. Archaeology says he was. But do you realize it wasn't always that case? There's sometimes until 1850, there's no mention of Belshazzar in any of the records that were known at the time. But in 1854, a historian actually changed all that. Matter of fact, a historian in 1850 remarked that Belshazzar was simply a figment of the imagination of Daniel. And that's because a lot of people in history have said those things when there's no historical fact at the time that backs that up. But in 1854, a fellow who was working for the British Museum was exploring some ruins in southern Iraq. His name was Mr. J.G. Taylor. And he ran across several small cylinders inscribed with 60 or so lines of cuneiform writing. And when these artifacts were translated, it was a prayer for a long life and good health for the Bonitus and his eldest son, Belshazzar. And then they go, oh, I guess he was alive. <laughs> but that's just one of those incidents that, yes, he existed. The Bible says he existed. Sometimes we don't have all those historical records because they're buried under mounds and mounds of sand that they got to come and unearth. But as they do, archaeology really just verifies what the Bible says. And archaeology is one of those things that helps us understand that the Bible truly is inspired. So I just brought that out for, for uh, some interesting, interesting tidbits about what happened there. But as far as his kingship goes, because somebody says, well, he was a son, he was never a king. Well, there was also facts that talked about the fact that he was a king. Yeah, there was another cuneiform document published in 18, 1924 by another guy working for the British uh, Museum by the name of Mr. Sidney Smith, and he emphasized the co-regent reign of Belshazzar. And he's the one that actually brought out the fact that in 1553, the Bonitus entrusted the army to the command of his eldest son while well, he took a long journey. And that long journey ended up being 10 years at this oasis. And um, it said he, put, he trusted everything, included the kingship to him, and then he started away. He returned again 10 years later. Now, that's the story of Babylon. The other context that we need to understand that's happening in the world and happening as verse 1 is taking place is the whole thing about Persia. 
Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire had been on a meteoric rise to the top in power. He had been successfully attacking areas of Babylon, and now he had his eyes on the city of Babylon. And if he could take it, then he could take charge of everything that had to do with the Babylonian Empire, and he would become the most powerful man in the world. And would he also feel God's prophecy, but he didn't know that. <laughs> so in September, October of 539, Cyrus defeated Nabonidus on his way to Babylon. Nabonidus escaped. He would later surrender. He was made a governor or an official of a Persian province, which to me is extremely interesting. But for now, having defeated Nabonidus outside of the city, but apparently somewhere near Babylon, and I don't know exactly where that was, Cyrus now heads to the city of Babylon itself, where he and his army are camped outside of the city on the night of this great feast in verse 1 of chapter 5. And you might just ask the question, why are they feasting when this huge army is now parked outside the city? And that's a really good question. There's no specific answer in him, but you'll recall when we talked about Babylon in the very first uh, introduction, Babylon was surrounded by two sets of double walls and a moat. The walls totaled about 85 feet in thickness. It was defended by numerous fortified towers, so there's no doubt this accounts for their nonchalant attitude toward the fact that nobody can do anything to us. After all, nobody had successfully penetrated the walls and overthrown Babylon. Why would they do this even tonight? Pretty good reasoning, except they forgot who they were fighting against, and that was God, and God had a plan. And on October 11th, 539, history would be made. The city would be taken over and the Babylonian Empire would fall. And we'll get into how they even got to do that. But regarding ancient Near Eastern kings, another thing, and I'm sure you could talk about this one too, not because you've done this, because <laughs> they were well known for their great banquets and drinking parties, okay? And so... To see these people engaged in a drinking party in chapter 5, verse 1, would not be unusual. Um, remember, even in Esther chapter 1, Ahasuerus' feast lasted 180 days. Um, Alexander the Great said he had 10,000 people at his marriage, and the wine flowed. <laughs> so this was just something that was not unusual. And oh, by the way, I, we haven't even gotten to the lesson when I wanted to just bring out our first lesson. And that lesson is the Christian should never have anything to do with these types of gatherings. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. The Apostle Peter reminded us in 1 Peter chapter 4 of a pertinent admonition that would have been applicable back then as it is now. And I'll just read 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh of the, for the lust of man, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough time of our past time in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, 
drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I mean, we could have said, hello, is that what I'm talking about, chapter 5, verse 1? Yes. <laughs> In regards to these, they think, they think it's strange that you don't run with them anymore doing the same things. Then because of that, they speak evil of you, verse 4. But in verse 5, he says, No, they will give an account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is in, therefore you be serious, watchful in your prayers. Paul also reminded the Corinthian brethren, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then he lists a whole list of sins. Fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, being a sodomite, or thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So right off the bat, the very first lesson of the night is we should never, ever be guilty of participating in such things as Belshazzar and his cohorts were involved in. It was not a good situation, and nothing good ever comes out of a bad situation. And that was just verse 1. <laughs> What else does the Bible have to say? And then when you think of a bad situation that was, it's now going to get even worse if you look at chapters or verses 2 through 4. In verse 2, it says, While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar made a fatal mistake. And that brought the wrath of God upon him in his kingdom. And the word he used there as he spoke was, it was almost as if, it's almost as if the word means it was the advice of the wine that he did what he did. You ever heard about that one? That's what the word meant. It was the, almost the advice of the wine. That is, it was under the wine's influence. And he made this mistake. And that mistake that he made was the appalling act of sacrilege using at his drunken banquet some of the sacred temple vessels that had been plundered from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Ezra, remember when they captured Jerusalem seven years ago, Ezra chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, numbered those items to be roughly 5,400 items that had been stashed away in a safekeeping. Why didn't he use his own? He's king. He's got plenty of money. He's the wealthiest man in the world. Didn't he have his own glasses? Oh, yeah, I'm sure he did. But that wasn't good enough for him. He goes and he calls for these glasses and these wine cups to be brought out and to be used at this feast. I can't help but wonder if it's not some slap at God, some celebrating the victory of their own gods over the God of the Hebrews. It, it was an insult to God himself. It was an arrogant assertion that this God of a captured people of which I'm in control of has no power over me. But for those of you who love game day as I do, remember what Lee Corso's favorite saying is? Not so fast. Okay? Not so fast. He was about to learn that God would not be silent 
at this repulsive sacrilege that he was pulling. Nor would he ignore their drunken, arrogant blasphemies when they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And he goes on and says, these things can't even talk. They don't listen. They don't do anything. And yet you're praising them instead of praising the God of heaven. That Nebuchadnezzar had learned he should praise. So when we get to verses 5 and 6, and I should have pulled 4, we see the handwriting on the wall. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. In the same hour after this drunkenness has been talked about and this partying, then the same hour the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now you think about this. You picture yourself being in that situation. And you're having a good time, and all of a sudden you see this hand appear. <laughs> Not a man with a hand writing, the hand and the fingers. So it's like this, you know. <laughs> Just imagine I'm not here. And the writing. And then the king's countenance changed. His thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of hips were, his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. What do we call that? Terrified. <laughs> He was absolutely terrified. Now, you may recall in chapter 4, verse 28, when Nebuchadnezzar was praising himself and walking along the palace, telling about how great he was, all of a sudden he heard God speak to him. and said, now's the time for your punishment. And with the background of a flickering candle and that dim lighting, Belshazzar now sees this ghostly hand writing four words on the plaster of the wall. And it wasn't a man's hand. It was simply, I mean, it wasn't a man. It was simply the fingers and the hand writing four words. Verse 5 emphasizes the point that the king not only saw the writing on the wall, but he also saw the part of the hand that wrote the writing. It seems that the combination of those two things is what scared the fire out of him. And because of that, he was not good I think it's very comical for us to be reading this, but to him, it obviously had to be terrifying case. When it says his countenance was changed, it literally means that his brightness was changed. I kind of like, I kind of talk about that when your color just turns white. <laughs> What's wrong? You know, something's going on. And no doubt, they have been having a great time, they have been laughing. They had been drinking with each other. They were making uh, fun of God. Everything was happening with the expense of God. And then God abruptly wiped the smile from this man's face. And to me, it was almost as if Belshazzar was throwing the entire weight of his kingdom in the face of God. And God took his little finger and said, not so fast. <laughs> not so fast. You got to learn a lesson. And how does the king react? Verses 5 through 7. He reacts the same way you and I would. We'd be scared to death. He basically says, help. I need help. <laughs> bring in the astrologers. Bring in the Chaldeans. Bring in the soothsayers. In essence, you bring in anybody who could help me read this writing and tell me what it means because it does not look good. And I would agree. Make sure you tell them that if you tell me the writing, three things will happen. 
Number one, I'll clothe you with purple. Number two, I'll put a chain of gold around your neck. And number three, I'll name you the third ruler in the kingdom. To wear purple and put a gold chain around your neck and make you a third ruler in a position close to the king itself would just simply be typical expressions of honor that was given someone for a good deed that they did. And the idea of being called the third ruler could have been the fact of what, what, uh, what was mentioned a minute ago. But what did you say that was? The queen mother? And then he would be second? And then somebody else? What did you say? Queen mother. Okay. All right. We'll be third. Yeah. And so it could have been that. Could have been some of the other things that we mentioned about either Nebonidus or uh, Belshazzar himself. But either way, who is going to be third? The one who told the interpretation. Okay. In verses 8 through 9, we see that the wise men came in, probably carrying the little dream manuals again. And then they could not even read the writing, verses 8 through 9, let alone tell what the interpretation was. And they were no help at all. So now what's he thinking? Oh, man, I got a problem. What do I do now? I wanted them here to make me feel better. Now I feel even worse. Something's got to be done. This very festive occasion had been turned totally upside down on its head. One moment, they were having the time of their life, drinking, socializing, humiliating God, the, the God of Israel, belittling the entire thing, and the next moment the whole happy congregation was thrown into this state of confusion. Everyone was entirely focused on the wall writing and its potentially dark implications. The party was over, and they knew it. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. In beginning of verse 10, the Bible tells us how the king will find out about the interpretation of that writing. Verse tells us that the, key, the queen, which would have been the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. She wasn't there before then participating in this, by the way. She's clearly not part of this carousing crowd, but she heard about it. She obviously was an important person in the kingdom. And... Um, there's a lot of speculation on who he was, on who she was. I won't even go into that. But what is interesting to note about this particular section is Daniel is more than likely in his early to mid-80s by now, and she knows that Daniel is alive. I'm not sure about Belshazzar knew anything about Daniel at this point in time. He may have. But she does. The only reason I know that is because she says, you need to call him. Were they getting together every once in a while? I don't know. She obviously knew who he was. She obviously knew everything about Nebuchadnezzar. And it was time for him to come to this party to clear up the writing on the wall. And sometimes there was some speculation. You know, whenever a president, whenever we change presidents, what happens? He, uh, he, he or she, no, she, yeah. He, uh, he ushers in his staff, a new set of chief of staffs and all his advisors, and the other ones go away. That may have happened to Daniel. I mean, after all, um, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 40-something years. And so Daniel may have just simply faded away from that chief of magician role, but he was still obviously someplace in the kingdom. And she knew that he was there, which to me is so interesting. Bruce. 
earlier in Daniel, uh, Daniel had been made a, a province governor by Nebuchadnezzar, which was further away. And perhaps, you know, some people have speculated why wasn't Daniel there uh, with Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Mm -hmm. Well, he wasn't in that area. The area that he was made a province of was pretty far away from Babylon. So like you say, uh, he may have been busy ruling uh, and the queen, the queen knew because she was, she was the top dog, and she knew everybody in the kingdom. Uh, whereas this crown prince maybe didn't, but she, she knew all her governors. Oh yeah, yeah. And remember, the king, the kingdom of Babylon is a massive, expensive place. But what did he think about the idea? Let's do it. Problem solved. Bring him in. Verses 13 through 16, the king calls for Daniel. Daniel's summoned. He's brought in. And in verses 13 and 14, the king said, Are you Daniel, who's one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. It's interesting. He brings out the fact, two things. Number one, he says, you're one of those Jewish captives? Yeah. And I heard that the Spirit of God is in you, light, understanding, and, and, and excellent wisdom. And then he goes and tells them his problem. He's got, I got this problem. I need your help. You see this writing over here on the wall? You can look over there right there. It's right there. It scares me to death. I, I don't know what it means. My people don't know what it means. I need to know what it means. I need you to read it. I need you to tell me what it reads. Do we have a deal? And he's like, hmm, tell me a little bit more. Okay, I'll give you clothes, a position, make you third man in the kingdom. Do we have a deal? No, we have no deal. Daniel says we have no deal. You can keep your rewards. You can give your rewards to anybody else. I'm not interested in that. I cannot be bought. <clears throat> your problem, and I'm thinking Daniel's thinking this, your problem is not your money. Your problem is your heart. He already knows what's going to happen here. But he says, regardless of that, I'll go ahead and I will read the writing, which your people could not do, and I will, too, tell you the interpretation, which your people could not do. And before reading the writing and telling what it meant, we see in verse 18, and starts his sermon, and a lot of people think it is a sermon to Belshazzar, and it begins with his old buddy, King Nebuchadnezzar. Basically says, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean Belshazzar, you ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar? Let me tell you about him. Now, step back. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream in chapter 4, what did Daniel do? Did he immediately tell him interpretation? Now, he froze. He was scared to tell his friend what was going to happen. Waited an hour. You see any waiting on his part here? <laughs> no, he's going to... Boom, he's going to let him have it. <clears throat> Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a great man, he says in verse 18, because who made him great? God made him great. By the way, he's going to be talking about Nebuchadnezzar, but the entire time he's really talking about Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar was great. He was so great that the peoples, the nations, and the languages trembled and feared before him. He could execute people. Nobody could stop him. 
He could keep people alive and no one could override his word. He could set up people. He could put down people. Nobody had anything over him. And he's basically saying, do you understand what I'm saying here? Think about it. But then he had a problem, and he told him, and he reminded him, he became too proud. He told him about the events that happened in chapter 4, about how he was hardened with his pride, how he was disposed for a while, how they took the glory from him. He was driven from men. His heart was made like the beast. His dwelling was with the animals. They fed him grass like oxen. Uh, ate. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, just like the animals in the fields. And he stayed that way until he learned that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, and he points over whoever he chooses, verses 20 and 21. And then verse 22. Read that with me. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although... You knew all of this. Notice he did not say, you should have known this. Then he had an excuse. He said, you knew all of this. Remember in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was telling the world about the events that happened to him and how God humbled him and how God, how he then came to his senses and he praised the God of Daniel. This should not have been anything that was a surprise. Matter of fact, he just says, you know all this. I don't know if he read the memoir. I don't know if anybody taught him. But Daniel says, you knew all of this. But, but instead of humbling yourselves, you yourself lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. The very Lord who humbled your grandfather is the very, or father, relative, is the very God that you have lifted your head against. What did you not learn? What did you not see? Well, how did I do that? I'll tell you how you did it. You brought the vessels of God's house before you, and you drunken wine from him. In other words, the God who humbled Nebuchadnezzar, yes, those were God's vessels that you brought on, out. And on top of that, you had the audacity to praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone, and none of them see, hear, or know anything. And in doing all that, you praised all these unknown gods, and you failed to give glory to the God who holds the very breath of your life in his hand and owns all of your ways. In the space of a few minutes, Daniel contrasted the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar at the height of his power, the indignity of his fall, and then the fact that he rose to the occasion to praise God and Belshazzar had nothing to brag about. He was nothing like Nebuchadnezzar. Had he taken the warning, what could have happened? The kingdom was going to fall. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that one. But maybe his own life could have been spared had he humbled himself before God. And maybe he would have ended up like his father. He ended up being over some kind of a province. And I think the lesson for us is that too many times we tend to fail at listening and learning from the harsh lessons that others undergo. 
We see them struggle, we see them strive, but too often we miss the whole point of their example. Forty years of wondering. In, in Deuteronomy, Moses makes the point, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, you gather this people together when you come into the land, men and women and little ones and the strangers in the gate, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe the words of the law. What would they have learned over a 40-year period of wondering? Number one, it should have only taken 30 days to get there, not 40 years. <laughs> Less than 30 days if they'd obeyed God and trusted God. They'd have learned to trust in God. They'd have learned that God would feed them and would take care of them, provide for them. That God would give them a law that they would learn that would be for their good. And yet we know what happened to the children of Israel. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hoped, Romans 15, verse 4. Well, then he tells Belshazzar that it was at that very moment when you failed to glorify God that the fingers of the walls appeared. And they wrote the four words, and I don't know how to pronounce this, many, many, Tico Perez. I'll just say that. And they were more than mere words. They were words that explained future events and gave proof that God knew that the, the future and controlled the events of world history. And it also revealed that God was getting ready to make a huge change in the superpower structure of the world. And it was going to happen very, very soon. And isn't it ironic that Belshazzar was forced to ask for the meaning of the words from one of the humblest hostages taken 70 years prior to this? God would glorify his name by bringing down this man in a single night, as well as those who made fun of him in his temple vessels. Many, many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Your days are numbered, in other words. Time has run out. Your life, your rule, it's done. Tickle, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, lacking, deficient. He did not measure up to God's standard. And then Perez, his kingdom was coming to an end and it will be given to the Medes and the Persians. It was to be, it wasn't to be scattered in pieces and given to two. The, the, the word divided there means it's a sense of being destroyed or dissolved altogether. What can you say when that happens? If you're Belshazzar, guilty. I'm guilty. He keeps his word. He gives Daniel exactly what he told him was good. Daniel didn't want it, but he, he's the king. You're, you're going to take these things. He gave him the, the purple robe. He gave him the chain. He made him third in the kingdom. I don't know how long that lasted since the very night the kingdom was going to be taken away. In, chapter, in verses 30 and 31, Belshazzar, he dies. Darius the Mede takes over, just as was prophesied by Isaiah, just as was prophesied by Jeremiah. And the Bible, in its simplicity, simply says in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Doesn't go into a long explanation of it. Nothing big, just straight to the point. Remember, we started off the lesson with the context of knowing that the Babylonian army had surrounded, I mean, the Persian army had surrounded Babylon. And one of the things that went into the city of Babylon was the Euphrates River. And they start looking at that and they go, if we could divert that river, we could go right under the walls. So they built a channel that they could divert the water. 
Remember, nobody had ever taken this city. So here's the water going into the Euphrates, the Euphrates going into the, to the city. So they built the channel so that they could divert the water. And then they just waited. And they waited till the water got so low that they could, history says, they could just wade in the water, go right under the walls, and go right into the city. This fortress was now penetrated. And by the time the alarm sounded, it was too late. They were all partying. Nobody was guarding the, guard, nobody was guarding the gates. And uh, Cyrus said that the God of Marduk gave me the city of Babylon without a fight. People died, but it wasn't a major fight. But even Belshazzar himself died that evening. God is a powerful God. And God will make happen what he promised. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. We serve an awesome God. Thank you.